the longer you stay in the robes, generally the more you appreciate the value of Sangha. <coughs> all the things that other bhikkhus share with you, particularly teachings, advice, but also material support when we're sick or just in helping us attain, obtain requisites, helping us, support us, we're on retreat. Sometimes in more subtle ways, just by the presence of Sangha, even if they don't say or do anything in particular. Last June I attended the Wat Bapong Terrors meeting and for part of the time Lumpur Si came and sat as the senior monk. He's 91 years old. I think he's the oldest living disciple of Ajahn Chah. He didn't say anything, but just having him sit, sit there was already something very inspiring for everybody. You could see the whole community, which was over 500 bhikkhus, they all warmed to his presence. Also made me think of the support Venerable Ajahn Mahabua gave to the Sangha after Lumpucha died. Came and visited the monastery several times. And there was also an occasion not long before I came to Australia where he came to Wapapong to uh, receive a papa but also to give teaching. <coughs> I remember him on most of the occasions he came to Wapapong, he talked a lot about very straightforward. Dhamma, particularly the emphasis on karma, wholesome karma, unwholesome karma, and the importance of to have faith in the principle of karma, and having had faith and to follow through with the practice. I remember he, the last occasion he came to Wabapong, he was joking with the monks how Many people in Thailand, although they have strong faith in Buddhism, they also perhaps don't practice as much as they could. And they try and leave it all to the last minute, hoping that when they die, as long as monks come and chant at their funeral, then everything will be all right. And they'll be sent on their way to a good rebirth, heavenly rebirth. And he chuckled and turned to the monks and said something in the line of, but we know better, it's not like that. You can't, certainly can't live an unskillful life 
do unskillful things and then hope at the end of their life a bit of chanting by the monks will set everything right. Perhaps it's a habit we pick up when we're a kid. When we're a kid we tend to rely on our parents quite correctly and they give us love and support. So while we're doing good, it's good, we get good results. If we do make mistakes, do the wrong things, we just hope that our parents will sort it out. That kind of attitude lingers on into our life. Often we not taking responsibility for our actions, more just looking for the right person to sort it out. Maybe when we're in our adult life we look for our connections or relatives or people we know to sort out our problems. Then when we die, we're hoping the monks coming to chant at our funeral will sort out the problem. Anja Mahabur emphasized over and over again in several of the talks he gave at Wapapong. Of course, it all comes back down to us. Each individual has to practice the teachings. Faith is good, but it's got to lead on to the next step, to the practice. He seemed to be making a point, because I remember him going through the different hell realms. He's talking about the 25 hell realms. Talking about the different heaven realms hell realms and realms of uh, what we call the unwholesome rebirth uh, after you die if you have made a lot of bad karma and can be reborn as animal or preta or or in the hell realms and for quite a while he went through that and said these karmic uh, results of how we live our life, heaven and hell, they do exist. It's true, what the Buddha said is true. Perhaps he was seeing that often people nowadays, because of our education, our background, the emphasis on science, reason, proving what you can see in the here and now, which is not all bad, but often makes people very skeptical about the law of karma and how it works, especially after you die. So just emphasize that over and over again. And his way of talking, that last occasion I remember him talking, he was talking about the practices basically the fruits of our practice is reducing the causes and conditions for more rebirth. Every time we establish mindfulness and recognize kilesa, craving, attachment, kilesa, with wisdom we abandon it there and then, then we are reducing the causes for more rebirth. 
I mentioned about Sotapanna, stream enterer, reached the point in the practice where the mind has been trained to the point where it's so efficient in recognizing kalesa, abandoning kalesa, that that practice, that practice has become like a good habit of mind. It's established. So at most this guaranteed only seven more lives, seven more rebirths for Sotapanna, and none of them in the lower realms. So they say the gate, gateway to the a hell realm rebirth is cut off for the Sotapanna. Then he said, but don't just think, oh, well, if I'll attain Sotapanna this life, then only a maximum seven more lives. He said, you should still be at aiming for Nibbana in this very life. Cut off all your defilements. <clears throat> what they call Ekipichi Sotapanna, is one who is destined just one more life. But that's this life. He talked about Venerable Ananda who spent many years as the, the Buddha's attendant. He didn't actually become the Buddha's attendant till he was like 55 years old. The Buddha had previously had a number of attendants, but it felt they never quite perfected the job. When he sought, sought a new attendant, Many volunteered, many of them were arahants at that time. Ananda was the only monk who didn't volunteer, even though he really wanted to do it, and was suitable for the job. He didn't want to put himself forward because he thought that would be a, an expression of self, a desire, almost like showing off. So he was very humble. He didn't put himself forward, but then the Buddha chose him. So he became foremost in Upataka, attendant, attending on the Buddha. He was foremost in other things as well, uh, storing the Dhamma. But he attended to the Buddha about another 20, 25 years. But all that time he was a Sotapanna. He was already a Sotapanna when he became the, the attendant of the Buddha. But perhaps because of his duties, looking after the Buddha, listening to the Dhamma, remembering the Dhamma, he didn't have so much energy or time maybe for his own practice. So when the Buddha ended Parinibbana, he's still a Sodapana. It's only when his uh, brother, Anuruddha, encouraged the uh, the monks when they were planning the first Sangha council and they said uh, should be attended only by the Arahants. They had everyone lined up. Ananda was vital for the process because he could remember all the teachings the Buddha had given. He's still only a Sotapanna. So Anuruddha made this rule that they'd have to be, they would have to be Arahants who attended the meeting as a way of trying to get Ananda to put more effort into his practice.
he went off. At first he was off in the forest on his own, but so many people had missed missing the Buddha, and they knew he had been the attendant of the Buddha. They all came, all the laity came, seeking him out, because they reminded themselves, meeting him would remind them of the Buddha and the happiness they'd had coming to meet the Buddha and offer, make offerings and learn the Dhamma from the Buddha. They'd shower their attention on Ananda, so he still didn't have any time for practice. And they say the devas decided to, this wasn't going to work, so they came down and told Ananda he had to stop meeting the laity, just get on with his practice. They put more effort into his practice. And you probably know the final night of his enlightenment, just before the Sangha Council tried practicing all night, sitting and walking, then got disheartened at dawn because he still hadn't attained Arahata Magapala. But just as he was lying down, they say his feet had left the ground, but his head had not touched the pillow. So an unusual posture to become enlightened. Nevertheless, he attained enlightenment just before dawn. So even though he spent much of his life as a Sodapana, he attained Arahant in this very life, his one, his one final life. Along Dhammahabua recounted that. We have to really commit ourselves to the practice learning to understand defilement, recognize defilement for what it is, and then develop the skills to deal with it effectively. You might say the skills are the development of satipatthana, developing the whole Eightfold Path, but one way of summarizing that, they come to realize the Four Noble Truths free the mind from ignorance and kilesas, to develop the Satipatthana. And all our teachers have emphasized over the years the importance of Gayakata Satipatthana, the first foundation of mindfulness. Because really all the other focuses of mindfulness, Vaitana, Jitta, Dhamma, they all come out of focus on the body. This is why Ajahn Chah emphasized practice of Anapanasati so much, recollection of the body, just as we are taught when we become novices, we reflect on the Kesa Loma Naka Dante Tacho. The important point is to always develop mindfulness and a continuity of mindfulness. This is the only way that we can really free our mind from the effects of kilesa, to see kilesa and then abandon kilesa. But with mindfulness has to be back, supported by wisdom to develop a, a wise attitude to our practice as well. You see this on retreat, as you practice on retreat with very little distraction, very little to do other than watch your mind and develop the, the path. You see the most subtlest kinds of thoughts coming up, different kinds of thoughts, memories, mental conditioning. 
obviously it's not all wholesome. There'll be plenty of times when the hindrances come up, negative thinking, unwholesome thinking. The important thing is to develop a wise attitude to this. We have to accept that we have made karma in the past. It gives its results, so we have different moods, different thoughts, different perceptions coming up. We have to be able to accept that. As part of our mindfulness practice, just accepting the kilesa as a kilesa, a defilement as a defilement. Just as we can accept wholesome dhammas as wholesome dhammas, we have to accept unwholesome dhammas as unwholesome dhammas. When there's real mindfulness, then we're not adding anything on to them. We're just recognizing, knowing them, what they are. That gives us the ability to let them go, abandon them, see them as anicca dukkha anatta. Of course, when mindfulness and wisdom is weak, then we tend to follow the kilesa. Jen uh, Cha used to say all the time, if you're still following your moods, then you haven't even begun to practice yet. And this is the, the hard part of the practice, is learning to restrain the mind, restrain the kilesas, establish mindfulness, not just keep following them, indulging them. Sometimes we're better at doing it than others. At least if we can have enough clarity to see defilement, see a hindrance as it arises and recognize it, know it for what it is, then half the, half the victory is won, as it were. This is why we have to keep developing meditation objects, keep having the patience and the perseverance to keep coming back to our basic practice of mindfulness, mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness of posture, mindfulness of the body, the body parts. Especially when you're on retreat and you're doing a lot of meditation, a lot of sitting and walking, then there's plenty of time to vary your meditation object. You'll find if you can't stick with the breath hour after hour, that's understandable, well, then you also have other meditation objects to turn to and use. You can turn to using the reflection on the body, awareness of the body, to also develop mindfulness and also develop wisdom. It's what we call patigula sanya. Patigula sanya means going against the stream, against the grain, the normal flow of the mind. Because the normal flow of the unenlightened mind, what we're all used to in the past, is to look for what's attractive, pleasing, desirable. What you might call anugula, going with the flow, with the stream. We like to think of what is pleasant what makes us feel good to look at, think about, desire, indulge in. When we start reflecting on the body with mindfulness, 
satipatthana, we're looking back at the body as it is. Patigula sanya, starting to see the unattractive side, bring that up to counter the old habits. This is probably one of the hardest practices, but when we have plenty of time, it's something that's very fruitful. In the way, as we, just as we chant, the way they encourage us to practice is to start with the hair on the head. We go from the tip of the head down to the tips of our toes, back again, one part by one part. There's 32 parts. Most of them are the solid part of the body coming from the earth element. The hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, skin, bones, the organs and so on. The lesser number of come from the liquid element. But just as a practice in itself is already quite time consuming just to go through one part by another, visualizing them, really coming, get a strong visual image based on what you've read, what you've seen before, or even just imagination if you need it. The aim is to become familiar with becoming mindful of this body as it is. Seeing each part and particularly noticing the unattractive side. That can be in terms of the way it looks, where it smells, feels, tastes, touch. They say if you try and just look at the whole body, it's too, too much, it's too difficult. So this practice of going through the 32 parts is helping to analyze it and break it down. But you have to focus on each part one at a time, and make it very clear. As if you're taking them out, putting them on a table or a bench next to you, examining them. The aim is to develop some real equanimity, some real calm as you do it, to the point where you can just see the body as, the body parts as they are. I think the comparison in the Scriptures is like a sack full of grains and seeds, like wheat and barley and different kinds of seeds or nuts. They're all, all packed into a sack. If you open the sack and you look at each grain, each seed, you could name it, but you wouldn't feel any great emotion, love or hate. You just know oh, it's that. You know its name, you, know, you recognize its features. That's how we practice with the body, just learning to recognize the body parts in an unemotional way, a calm, peaceful way. Just learning to recognize them and see what that does to the mind. It starts to break up the habit of always looking for the attractive, the desirable, whether it's in our own body or in others. Obviously, you have to know your own character as you do this. And some people do find it very depressing, difficult. So you have to take it gently, 
Some people actually feel sick when they contemplate the body. You have to go at your own pace. It's a way we develop both calm and insight at the same time. This calm and insight arise in this one mind. They're not really separate, separable. First of all, we are though aiming just to be mindful of each body part, visualize it till we can hold the vision in our mind calmly and with mindfulness. As we get more skilled, more experienced at it, then contemplate it. See it, anicca, dukkha, anatta. Every day you live in the monastery, lay people come, they're always telling you about their illnesses, the problems, old age, different kinds of illness, sickness, accidents, injuries. You get, sooner or later you get a, an awareness that every single part of this body is dukkha. It's imperfect, subject to illness, subject to aging. It won't last. And if one part goes downhill quickly, then the whole body can follow. So if you have a heart problem, the whole body can be affected. You have a liver problem, a kidney problem, problem with your blood, problem with your bone marrow. One part of the body can actually have a chain reaction and bring the whole thing down very quickly. Maybe even long before old age comes on. Some people die very young just because one part of the body is not working working properly. These are the kind of reflections you bring up. You visualize each body part. You consider the truth about it with mindfulness, with wisdom. In a very calm, ordinary sort of way, you're teaching the mind to look at it, look at this body in a new way. And of course, if you get more skilled at doing it with yourself, you can look at others. But you have to know your character, like some what they say, for the lusty character to be careful. You can't just rush off to look at other people's bodies or consider them too quickly. So it just turns into lust. Like the monk who was a disciple of Venerable Sariputta. Venerable Sariputta thought he was doing the right thing. He gave him the contemplation of the 32 parts of the body as his meditation object and sent him away. But he kept thinking of women. He kept dwelling on how attractive women were. So he came back and said, oh, more lust than before. And then Sariputta sent him away a second time. Still the same problem. Eventually sent him off to the Buddha. The Buddha with his deeper abhinya knew that this monk in a past life, he'd been a goldsmith. Actually, he'd been a goldsmith for many, many lives. So he had a great sense of beauty. He's attracted to gold, the gold color, and the jewelry, the beauty of jewelry. He'd been making it for many lives. When he does a super, contemplates the body, he can't, not yet ready to, to do it with a human, just keeps thinking in a lustful way. So the Buddha gave him a lotus flower. He said, try this. Send him off and he sat down watching this lotus flower. And he could focus on the lotus flower because he was attracted to the beauty of it. The golden color held his attention. But um, over time, of course, the lotus flower started to wither and they turn black. They lose their color, they lose their smell, they dry up, 
shrivel. So his mind's got the point, he started to see the impermanence and the suffering of a lotus flower. And then he could turn back and look at his own body, his own self. Sometimes when you practice contemplating the body, it has to be like that. You have to keep, keep the mind happy and calm first. Give it something that will satisfy it, make it feel at ease. And then turn to the object. But you don't want it to be so easy that it just goes to lust. You have to be careful. Generally we say don't contemplate the women body of a woman if you're a man if you're a woman you don't contemplate the body of a man contemplate your own body or the body of an old person of the same gender learn to visualize it and see it you can use your imagination imagine what happens as the body ages how the skin changes the hair changes even the internal organs, they must be changing with age. Things go harder, blood vessels tighten up, things are less elastic, our muscles are less flexible. Things change. Or you could even just look at color. They say when you contemplate bones, imagine when somebody dies, the color of their bones when they begin, say after they've died, in the first period after they die, the bones generally are quite white. You might even say pleasing to look at, a fresh skeleton. In the sense it's unblemished, it's almost shiny. And then if you were to leave a skeleton out in the open, what happens when it starts to change color, goes darker, becomes blemished, becomes the effect of the air and the sun on it, bleaches it, and they go brittle, and they lose some of their weight. Eventually they actually start to break up and become even powdery. They can mix with the earth. different parts of the body, they change color with age, change color with the effect of the environment and so on. Nothing is fixed. All of this you can contemplate and at the same time you're teaching the mind to see oh, this body is, is body. Seeing the body in the body, the different parts of the body, the different parts are not a self, there's not a person, a being in them. They're affected by nature. Eventually they go back to the primary elements that they came from. The earth, the water, the air. When they go back to the elements, then what's left? Well, they say emptiness. That sense of self, ownership disappears, well what's left was emptiness. This is emptiness that's coming through the development of mindfulness and wisdom, investigating the truth. So with it you get a certain peace and happiness of mind. 
what they call niramisa sukha. It's the opposite of what people in the world, what we're normally looking for, which is just amisa sukha, just different kinds of sensual happiness. That's our normal mode or normal way for human beings, is always looking for the next bit of pleasure, next bit of happiness through our senses. It's not always the more extreme kinds of pleasure, you know, nice food, nice sights, nice sounds, interesting sounds and so on. It's also just having something to do, something to stimulate ourselves. So even mundane tasks can be a sort of pleasure when they take you away from any dukkha you're having in your, your body and your experience. We're always looking for the next activity, the next thing to do, the next thing to experience. That's the way of the world, always looking for different kinds of happiness and pleasure. But they're very temporary and they're constantly agitating the mind because it's coming from ignorance and craving. Whereas the Niramisa Sukha that comes from the result of Bhavana, it's satisfying to the mind. It lasts longer. It calms the mind and it gives you a sense of what the peaceful mind is like. It's self-sufficient, it's content. This is why the Buddha emphasized the importance of the peaceful mind in the practice. It's the highest happiness, is a peaceful mind. But why is that? Because it exposes the unpeaceful mind and all the kinds of behavior, physical, mental behavior, which agitate the mind, disturb the mind, and lead to more suffering. If you put effort into the contemplation of the body, the Gayagadasati or the Asupagamatana, corpse meditations, even though they require a lot of effort, a lot of patience to do, they're not always easy to do, not always what you would like to do. If you put effort into them, you find one of the results is the mind is much more willing to bear with different kinds of dukkha, unpleasant physical sensations, easier to bear with. You know, the dukkha waiting are just sitting or walking or illness, or different kinds of aches and pains, much easier to bear. Also, strangely in its own way, it gives rise to compassion. Instead of looking at people more and just terms of who's attractive, who's unattractive. You see through that to more see people as spiritual beings who are experiencing happiness and suffering. And there's the wish more for people to experience a freedom from suffering. So it gives rise to compassion as a result. In the end, whatever practice we're doing, whatever meditation object, whatever we're developing, with more steady mindfulness, then we're able to contemplate our experience more. 
then there's less and less that can actually overcome the mind or shake the mind. Even though defilements are still arising, we can see them for what they are. We can see defilements rooted in greed as that. Oh, this is a defilement rooted in greed. Even though it's coming up, you're no longer anxious about it or upset about it, or averse to it. You just know, oh, this is what it is. It's like this. Aversion the same, delusion the same. Half of the difficulty in our practice is just what we think about ourselves, our practice, our state of mind. As we develop more steadiness through the practice of mindfulness, then we can see these things are just what they are. Given you a few reflections tonight, maybe uh, that's enough for tonight. We can carry on practicing. The chanting will be at 11.30.